Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a home invasion attack on the husband of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, who is the third in line head of state behind the President and the Vice President. Having been demonized by Trump and the Republicans, Pelosi was sought after by the mob that stormed the Capitol, calling out to kill or capture Nancy, and the QAnon and Stop the Steal follower who bludgeoned Paul Pelosi with a hammer, he also was calling out, where's Nancy? Joining us is Wendy Veer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, and we will discuss the warlike, dangerous descent of our divisive political discourse and the lust for violence being stoked by Trump and spread by the reactionary right-wing techno-capitalists who control social media. Wendy's work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights, and previously she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Then we'll look into Elon Musk's final $44 billion acquisition of of Twitter, which he tried to get out of and for which he overpaid, and speak with Jacob Silverman, a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor for The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He is the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection, and he often writes about the politics of tech, privacy, surveillance and media, and is currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. We will discuss his latest article at the New Republic, The Quiet Political Rise of David Sachs, Silicon Valley's Prophet of Urban Doom, and his latest article at the Baffler, Musk of the Spheres, Elon's Doomed to Succeed, Twitter Buy. Then finally we will speak with David Rothkopf, a columnist for The Daily Beast and the founder and CEO of The Rothkopf Group a media company that produces podcasts including Deep State Radio, hosted by Rothkopf. He is also a visiting professor at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and the author of a number of books including Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. His latest book out this week is American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation, and we will discuss his article at The Daily Beast, Putin's last hope to win in Ukraine is a GOP victory in November. And joining us now is Wendy Vaya, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Via. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Wendy. And on the very same day that uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was attacked by an intruder who smashed his head with a hammer and fractured his skull, that same day, a bulletin was released by the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, the U.S. Capitol Police, and the National Counterterrorism Center saying that Perceptions of election fraud will likely result in heightened threats of violence. And just to quote the bulletin, following the 2022 midterm election, perceptions of election-related fraud and dissatisfaction with electoral outcomes likely will result in heightened threats of violence against a broad range of targets, such as ideological opponents and election workers. So we're already 
seeing this happen, and there have, of course, been already assassination attempts on Gabby Giffords, a Democrat, on Scalise, a Republican, Pramila Jayapal's home has been under siege uh, with an armed guy shouting threats and profanity. Susan Collins' uh, home in Maine was broken into. And now we have the Speaker of the House's uh, husband, his life threatened by an intruder who is a QAnon follower and a believer in election conspiracies, uh, stop the steal, etc. So who do we hold responsible for this? Well, I think that we ob- we obviously have to hold the individual responsible in all cases. But the these individuals who are acting, um, like the ones that, say, in Arizona, the armed guards at the ballot boxes, people showing up to campaign rallies with guns, the riot at the Capitol, different riots across the country um, protesting the 2020 elections, I do think that when Trump began his campaign and then later during his presidency, he unleashed something that was present in the American society, a bigotry and an anger that we had been working for years as uh, collectively to address. And Trump set us back decades with that. You so I mean, I squarely place some blame on Trump and his allies and also put some blame on the social media companies who are the largest influence, you know, have the ability to influence the most number of people in the world. This um, anger and vitriol is a global problem. Well, you mentioned the vigilantes in uh, in Arizona, armed vigilantes at ballot drop-off boxes in Maricopa County in a Latino neighborhood, they just got a break from a federal judge, a a Trump appointee who is a member of the Federalist Society. He basically doesn't have a problem with what they're doing, and what they're doing is clearly election intimidation. So in terms of Trump, it's obvious that Trump is the main problem. He, after all, engineered and led and incited the insurrection on January the 6th, where they stormed the Capitol, his followers, and were shouting for, where's Nancy? They literally wanted to kill her. They also were talking about hanging Mike Pence as well. And ever since then, Trump has, at his rallies, has been calling for these uh, traitors. He's going to pardon them all. He calls them heroes. And He's the one that's inciting all of this stop the steal nonsense, which is, you know, unfortunately, it has deadly consequences because this character in San Francisco who was looking for Nancy Pelosi and broke into her home, he's influenced by the same stuff along with QAnon, which is also something that Trump supports along with Marjorie Taylor Greene and these others. So at what point do we have, I mean, if if a federal judge is not going to stand by the law, how do we put these people out of business? How do you put Donald Trump either in an orange jumpsuit or in a straitjacket? It's a, he's a clear and present danger, and he has to be stopped. And unfortunately, a lot of people in this country want him to become the next president. So for the life of me, I just don't understand. There's a madness afoot in the land. I have to agree with you. There, There is 
it is like a madness. It's like um, it has that has taken over uh, uh, half the country. I don't know the answer. I, from my perspective, the criminal investigations are going along um, as they should. Uh, I, we will have to wait and see what happens if there are indictments, either federally or in Georgia, possibly in New York. The party, I do not believe that the Republican Party will try to put something, somebody up against Trump if he makes the decision to run again. Right now, of course, he's holding on to that because so many rules kick into um, play once you uh, officially announce your candidacy. And he, he, I think he's measuring or trying to gauge the likelihood of his winning. I don't think he'll run again if there's a slightest chance that he'll lose. But having said that, one of the bigger problems is that his election denying his, well, everything he's done, in my view, is anti-democratic. So he he takes this anti-democratic approach that is being picked up at the state and local level and having a much bigger actual impact on our ability to vote i'm sure you've seen just like that judge in arizona who said all right so what is the number of feet that satisfies both the right to bear arms and the right to be free from intimidation at the polling place well the number is 75 feet that is not very that is and likely the people that are voting have to walk past the person who's holding who's bearing arms it is absolutely a straight-up intimidation tactic and one that is being promoted across the country in a very organized and um, collective way. It's, it's terribly frightening. The folks, the legislators at the state level and at the local level are implementing laws across the country that are making it more and more difficult to vote. They're trying to put the the results of elections in the hands of of, uh, partisan legislators. And that is one of the things that we have to fight. That's what's been unleashed, a, a complete willingness to deny our republic at the state and local level. It is it is frightening. Well, in a little over a week from now, we could find ourselves seeing the beginning of the end of American democracy because of all these election deniers. It's like over 290 of them running, for, and some of them are going to get elected, and they've targeted important swing states. So American fascism is just around the corner, and we see it every time. We see Donald Trump on television, these rallies, this kind of orange version of Mussolini. It's so manifest. But the other thing that you mentioned, Wendy Via, which I think is right on point, and that is, and in fact, we're talking about it in today's program, that social media and these, these tech billionaires like Peter Thiel, Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk bear a huge responsibility for this poison in our body politic through the means of communication, the main means of political discussion now in this country, have become social media. And there's just no moderation. They talk about Twitter's going to have moderation and Facebook has moderation. But this is where, I mean, Parler and all these far-right-wing sites, they're basically bankrupt. Nobody really listens to them. So 
These guys are really responsible, and they're all of one. They're all huge Trump supporters. So what do you think their endgame is? I, I, I Just for the life of me, if they want to spread chaos and bloodshed, which appears to be their motive, what possible endgame is there? Well, I think that, I, I mean, I can't say that they want to spread bloodshed. I, I, I can easily say that the consequences of their inaction um, to enforce the policy and, and to take proactive steps to protect the democracy results in this in the shedding of um, of blood. I, I think that what we're looking at for folks like uh, Peter Till and now Elon Musk, and I don't know if you saw just a little bit ago, the a prince in a Saudi prince just announced that they're the second largest owner of Twitter after Elon now. I believe it's a coordinated effort under the guise of free speech to actually silence the dissenting votes of or the the proponents of a free and flourishing democracy. That's what I think. And I, and I think that they hide behind something saying, well, we're just letting people talk. We're just, it's a, Elon Musk with, it's a town square. It's not a town square. It is a place where the most outrageous and inflammatory content rules. It is a place where people go to, to share their anger. Yes, they, they share cat videos and things like that, but the very nature of social media requires that in order for it to be profitable, it requires that inflammatory and polarizing content. These folks know it. So in the best of circumstances, their their end game is a, a financial motive because, you know, they allow the algorithms to continue the way they are because it ends up making them more money. They can sell more advertisements. But for somebody like Peter Till and possibly Elon Musk and and others, it is it is their motivation, I believe, is to create a space where the most conservative and far right voices have a place. Well, they seem to have a dominant place, uh, I guess, because <laughs> yes. they're the, the loudest. But. I just find it so absurd, and I don't know why anybody could take this situation seriously with uh, Twitter, that the richest man in the world takes a public company, buys it, takes it private, all in the name of free speech. Is that right? Teal and the, all these guys are talking about freedom, freedom. It's freedom for them to make money, but we have to deal with the consequences. I mean, freedom and liberty in this country has reached the point where... It endangers life and the pursuit of happiness. I completely agree. And the idea that these decisions and, and we're, we're obviously talking about the United States now because we have our midterms in, in just over a week. The But this is a global issue and it's a global economic market. And so all of this is being taken into account for those that like Zuckerberg at Facebook for the financial motive. But for uh, people like Teal and um, then um, then there's Rumble out of Canada. So these these other uh, they're not large, but they're being formulated sort of as a as a reaction to um, their belief that voices are being shut down. 
And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sorry. I wish I could be more eloquent on it, but it's it is a very discouraging situation. And we are going to be years coming out of the effects of Trump and social media. I don't know um, how many years, but one of the, I mean, one of the best ways out of it is voting. As long as we, I mean, while we still have the chance to vote. Well, Wendy Veer, I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. And I share your concern and frustration, but I guess you're right. Voting, that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> people have to vote. You know, this is money versus people. And you That's can't right. let money win, particularly toxic money in the hands of really toxic people. That's Again, right. A handful of toxic people who are making the decisions for all of us. And again, I've been speaking with Wendy Veer, who is the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We take a brief station break and back looking into Elon Musk's $44 billion acquisition of Twitter, which he tried to get out of and for which he overpaid. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Silverman, who's a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor for The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection, and he often writes about the politics of tech, privacy, surveillance, and media, and is currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. His latest article at the New Republic is The Quiet Political Rise of David Sachs, Silicon Valley's Prophet of Urban Doom. And his latest article, The Baffler, is Musk of the Spheres, Elon's Doomed to Succeed Twitter Buy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Silverman. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the $44 billion Twitter deal that looked like Elon Musk was trying to get out of for the last few months has been signed and he he brought a a kitchen sink into the Twitter headquarters and now I think he's he's going to have to pay up to what 200 million to to for golden parachutes to the top executives he he just fired he's borrowed 12 billion from banks and billions from his tech buddies what's your sense of whether or not this is going to work for him given that the assumption is 
that he was trying to get out of this deal, and it's probably going to affect his other businesses, in particular Tesla. I think it very well could be. I mean, we know that obviously uh, Elon Musk is the, the richest person in the world, at least on paper, but his whole business empire is highly leveraged. It's very dependent on the Tesla stock price, on being able to borrow against his shares and also being able to liquidate some of his shares when needed, uh, sometimes billions of dollars worth, which can in turn affect that Tesla stock price. So he is someone with a lot of competing interests or overlapping interests and perhaps sometimes competing. And he's not necessarily as liquid as you might think for someone who's supposedly worth $200 billion. So, um, you know, it's not just a, uh, an expensive toy he's picking up. It is another, um, you know, it's another feather in his cap, but it's also another company that potentially could lose him a lot of money or cost him elsewhere, including with Tesla. And he paid $54.20 a share. What's its current share value? Uh, let's see. I, ha- I didn't check what it closed at the end of the week, but it, it was regularly, um, you know, in the 30s and 40s after he uh, after he agreed to that price. I mean, frankly, Twitter's original investors or it, uh, did quite well on this deal because a lot of people do think he overpaid. And, you know, the Twitter stock price did start declining 10 or 20 percent or so after uh, this deal was originally announced. And one savvy thing that Twitter actually managed to do was they kind of forced through the legal agreement they had, they, they basically forced uh, Musk back to the table at the originally agreed upon price, which for a lot of people does feel like a big overpay. So it depends upon, uh, Twitter depends upon advertising like Facebook, etc. And it does seem that he could be quite vulnerable I mean, already General Motors have cancelled their advertising. Already there's an influx of the N-word and anti-Semitism. I guess the far-right trolls are testing the waters with Twitter. But um, Yeah, I, th- uh, I think so. Uh, I mean, it's important to note that no, no real moderation policies have been changed, but there's definitely people feeling emboldened and kind of testing the waters, like you talked about, a lot of reports of that. Um, and I think it was also revealing that one of Musk's first public statements at the end of this week was he, he sent a letter to advertisers or a public letter to advertisers because it wasn't to users reassuring them that, hey, this website will, will still be good. We still uh, have some concerns about people's experience and things like that. No, it was, it was sent to advertisers telling them that this will still be a friendly place for your ad, which obviously speaks to the bottom line of the company, but it also shows where the priorities are. And that while Musk kind of does what he wants, he may find himself in the end at least a little bit beholden to advertisers or some of these other constituencies. And of course, it's also worth noting that Twitter hasn't made any money, right? It's yeah, it's been. been in the uh, red. I think they've had some some positive cash flow quarters, but it, it's really not a, a a very profitable business. It's got some serious issues. I mean, we were just talking a month or two ago in the media about. This whistleblower uh, who went by the nickname Mudge, a famous security engineer, who was saying that Twitter has all these inherent problems with how it protects data and who has access to what, its relationships with some foreign governments like Saudi Arabia and India. I mean, there are a lot of concerns about this company financially, politically, even operationally and, and, and in terms of security that are unlikely to get better um, right away. I mean, perhaps there's room for improvement under Musk, but... You know, if he fires all the people he's he's kind of he's talked about firing, you could see the actual experience of the site degrade a lot. There could be more hacks, 
there could be more racist and abusive material like we referred to earlier, too. Well, he already just got played by Putin coming up with this ridiculous Putin's idea of a peace deal while he's murdering a country next door and devastating it. And then you have to ask yourself about how much is personally perhaps compromised because of Tesla's dependence upon China and uh, mm-hmm. could the Chinese have influence over him? You mentioned just in passing the, how Saudi Arabia had infiltrated Twitter. Yeah. And, and that's an extraordinary story in itself, how they mm-hmm. had a spy operating in Twitter's uh, San Francisco headquarters and then the FBI warned Twitter in 2016 that they had a mole and then instead of acting on the FBI's advice, Twitter executives basically confronted this guy and he scooted off to Saudi Arabia where he now works for Mohammed bin Salman's personal foundation. That's exactly right. He was actually just out of frame in that famous picture of Trump and I believe the crown prince touching that orb. Um, So that's a perfect example of Twitter's political entanglements and how it's really poorly handled security issues in the past. I mean, I'm not always a big defender of the FBI, but they told they reasonably told them, hey, don't alert this guy to the fact that we're on to him. And they did just that. And he used his Saudi connections to get out of the country the next day. Um, he called someone at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles, in fact. Um, so, you know, Mudge, the, the, the whistleblower who spoke on Capitol Hill before Congress, he said that there was someone who was believed to be a Chinese spy on Twitter's pay- payroll. I mean, it should be clear. Some of this stuff may have been inadvertent. There, the accusation that they may have hired someone related to the Modi government is, I think, um, considered a little more deliberate, as in they did that in order to curry favor with the Modi government. But when these tech companies, and especially ones that are social media platforms that deal with speech and privacy issues, when they have operations all over the world, that means they're dealing potentially with a lot of uh, authoritarian or dictatorial governments. They're dealing with different kinds of laws and cultural standards. And it's been one of the huge problems from Facebook and Myanmar to uh, Twitter and Saudi Arabia that these companies basically become the communications platforms in these foreign countries, but they're not equipped to, to handle that responsibility and to deal with local authorities or to protect people's rights. Um, and in terms of Musk himself, I, I think you raise a good point. I mean, this guy sort of has the He's like an industrialist, like in the Howard Hughes mold, um, you know, pr- probably just as eccentric in a way. But he has a wide variety of interests, uh, of commercial interests, which are very political in some cases. And, yeah, do bring him into contact or even with conflict of major powers. China is very important for the for Elon Musk's empire. And, uh, of, of course, so are anything from mineral rights in South America to uh, the factory he, he wants to have in Germany. So um, it's hard to think that if there's an important or politically connected decision at Twitter that maybe Musk needs to sign off on, how do we know that he's not, that he's not going to be sort of compromised or, think, or thinking about his various competing interests? Um, and w- will Twitter be a way that he uses to curry influence overseas when he's trying to, say, set up a new Tesla factory somewhere or deal, do a deal with a foreign government? I mean, it's just not the kind of person you can easily trust to be an impartial steward of this platform that he claims actually serves the public. And just to follow up on the Saudi issue vis- vis-a-vis uh, Twitter, MBS 
ends up being one of the biggest shareholders in Twitter because he confiscated the fortune of Prince Alawid bin Talal, who he, that's right. he, he tortured and, and held, held. And, you know, that's one of those things where it's hard to know 100% for sure. I mean, Alawid bin Talal still holds himself out as, as one of the main owners of those shares, but we know about the crackdown that happened under MBS, and Alawid bin Talal was in prison in the Ritz-Carlton like a lot of other rich Saudis. And he was tortured. And then he came out a little while later, presumably after having given over some of his assets. So, I mean, he may control them in, in sort of a public sense. But, yeah, MBS is in charge. And MBS met with Jack Dorsey, whose views actually are very much in line with a lot of Elon Musk's views. So, and Jack Dorsey follows um, a, uh, an, an advisor to MBS, the guy who ran the spy ring. He follows him on Twitter. So there's just a lot of these uncomfortable entanglements and yeah, the Saudi issue, I think, is very big. I mean, the Saudis have a—Twitter is very popular in Saudi Arabia. It's one of their biggest markets outside the U.S., and certainly the biggest in the Middle East. But you have—every month a Saudi Twitter user is, is unmasked or doxxed and then arrested um, for, for doing free speech. So, you know, that's just one place uh, where I think there's a lot of concern. And obviously Saudi Arabia is an important and complicated American ally, so— it's not just as simple as, hey, this eccentric billionaire is promising us free speech again on the free speech platform. There's so many constituent issues that I think people, and especially people who are fans of Musk on the right, are really ignoring. And again, I'm speaking with Jacob Silverman, who's a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor at The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection. And he often writes about the politics of tech, privacy, surveillance, and media, and is currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. And his latest article at the New Republic is The Quiet Political Rise of David Sachs, Silicon Valley's Prophet of Urban Doom. And his latest article at The Baffler is Musk of the Spheres, Elon's Doom to Succeed, Twitter Buy. Well, just on the surface, there's a certain absurdity, if not tragedy, the idea that the richest man in the world has taken a public company and taken it private in the name of mm-hmm. free speech. I mean, <laughs> yeah, free, free speech for plutocrats, right? This is like <clears throat> Citizens United Supreme Court decision gone mad. Um, Very much so. So let's talk a little about Musk and the PayPal ma- mafia that you write about in uh, your article, The New Republic, The Quiet Political Rise of David Sachs, Silicon Valley's Prophet of Urban Doom. He's a lesser-known member of the Silicon Valley Mafia, David Sachs, but he he was the lead funder of uh, the recall of the the liberal mayor in San Francisco. And he's created this uh, website for podcasting called Call In, and he seems to be cultivating a kind of cadre of what you called post-left contrarians like Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, and Matt Taibbi, all of whom mm-hmm. are, are huge fans of Putin's. And, I mean, I, I find this whole thing kind of a bizarre, of what's going on mm-hmm. with the far left in this country, along with the far right, in love with Putin. Particularly when you think about David Sachs's whole raison d'etre, for, at least in terms of getting rid of the San Francisco DA, was... This idea that California's become dystopian uh, or San Francisco is full of chaos and lawlessness is what uh, Sachs and also Thiel and others say. How do they justify the idea that they believe that, you know, which is, by the way, a part of the Republican campaign this year, you know, against the 
emigrants and also they're railing about the increase in crime. So it's a part of that kind of mantra that's going on there. But I can't understand how you could be saying that, you know, California's beset with crime and homelessness at the same time support perhaps one of the biggest criminals on the planet who runs a criminal state, a mafia state, Putin's mm-hmm. Russia, and he's murdering the country next door. I mean, he's a mega criminal. So what? why are they justifying Putin on the one hand and then railing against crime on the other? Well, I think on, on the Putin front, I mean, a lot of these people would say, hey, we, we don't support Russia, but they do, you know, they are very critical first and foremost of uh, the U.S state and security establishment. And I think they it, it comes from something that's very real, which is perhaps an exhaustion with, with 20 years of warfare. But um, but then, you know, it, it kind of eliminates any responsibility, I think, in the way they talk about it, at least from the Russian side. And um, they often will, you know, instead of saying, hey, it's perhaps it's Putin's responsibility to leave Ukraine because he initiated the invasion, they're, they're, they sort of they'll concede some of Putin's points, like maybe he should have Crimea. But um, you know, I think a lot of that really does come first from this this nationalist America first attitude that traces back to a form of isolationism that we've had in this country since the '50s, if not earlier. I mean, someone the other day compared it to the John Birch Society, and in some ways, it is sort of like that. It's this, I mean, America first um, kind of nationalism where. They don't, they're not opposed to military power, but especially someone like Sachs, but um, they, they see this as like not really uh, our remit. Um, but domestically, you know, it, it, and that, that's sort of, there's a little bit more at least coherence to that sort of thing. But domestically, what I think you see is there, there really is this disenchantment with the Democratic Party and this belief that Democrats have ruined cities and that, and that, um, Sort of the democratic experiment has failed, and, but they don't really have any solutions. So that's what I see a lot in uh, sort of the urban setting here. What we're talking about with the democratic, with the urban politics of places like San Francisco, they just think that well, the Californian dream is dead because I have to go outside and see homeless people, and crime has gone up a little bit. Um, but there's no real positive alternative or solution. I mean, even Peter Thiel, at a recent speech, said. Maybe we need to start uh, offering some positive solutions. But that's why I call it kind of politics of, of peak or sort of, of anger. They, they are kind of subsisting on this righteous anger, saying that, you know, Democrats are too into identity politics and look at our cities, they're a mess. Um, but there are also, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't really necessarily honest about that attitude. I think for one thing, they treat homeless people themselves like criminals when you know, homeless people do commit crimes, but also homeless people are among the largest victims of crimes. And, um, you know, there's very little thought to how do you address homelessness in terms of getting people into housing or treatment. It's more like how can you get them out of the way and further criminalize homelessness and encampments in L.A. and other places. So I think that's the general attitude. It's one that, like, the urban cores need to be protected for the middle class and the upper middle class, but um, but they don't really have any solutions for the people really suffering, which are the homeless and the working poor and people like that. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, that David Sachs has a house on Billionaires Row in San Francisco, not far, I take it, from where Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked, um, beaten with a hammer, and without holding these techno-billionaires completely responsible 
the reactionary right-wing techno-capitalists, the the so-called PayPal mafia of Musk, Thiel, Zuckerberg, and Sachs. There's a few others too, right? Aren't they responsible in a way? Haven't they become the conduit for all this hate and division, social media in general? I mean, it's so obvious that things have gone awry in the last decade or so. It's hard not to recognize that there's a connection between uh, the rise of hatred and the rise of division, and largely driven by one man, I might add, Donald Trump, who who they all support. All of these characters, one way or the other, support him. In fact, Thiel completely supports him and, you know, was featured at Trump's 2016 convention, Republican Mm -hmm. convention. So there's no mystery about this. And what are they all about? What kind of a vision do they have? I mean, the idea that you want Donald Trump, who was absolutely disastrous and is dividing the country and turning Americans against each other and we're poised for more violence and we just got a manifestation of it with the attack on Paul Pelosi, they're playing with fire, and I don't understand what their end game is. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, um, you know, there's not really a long-term vision being laid out, even one that, you know, might be something disturbing that we could argue or fight against. I mean, one thing I did, well, there are a couple things. One, I think we need to pay attention to how much money is pouring into politics from this sort of group of people, and that's something that I wrote about in my article, which is that You know, Thiel obviously is one of the major funders of the Republican Party, has been a key funder of Trump, especially when Trump was was not doing so well at some point in the 2016 campaign. Uh, And Sachs is his his friend since college. They wrote together. They wrote a book together called The Diversity Myth, which is a pretty objectionable book, I would say. But, you know, they're putting money into these races, which are mostly right wing politicians, people like J.D. Vance or Blake Masters. They do give a lot of money to uh, Sachs and some of his friends do give a lot of money to DeSantis. I feel like they're sort of lining up behind DeSantis as a possible alternate, depending on what happens in 2024. But it really is sort of about rejecting the status quo. So, for example, a lot of Sachs' money in recent years, besides going to specific politicians, I mean, he gave a million dollars to J.D. Vance's PAC because um, Peter Thiel basically brokered the deal. But his other money seems to be going into recall elections. So he, he helped fund the recall of Chase Abudin, the progressive prosecutor in San Francisco. He helped fund the attempted recall of the governor um, and the successful recall of part of the school board in San Francisco. And you see this happening throughout California and other parts of the country where these mechanisms are, are in place. You can't have recalls everywhere, but you ha- there are rich people, including rich techies, paying to just recall politicians, especially progressive prosecutors, because they don't like what they've seen so far from criminal justice reform. But again, there's no real solution put in place. And then so what I think you end up with is what you were describing earlier, which is a tremendous amount of uh, demonization of political enemies. Certainly, I mean, look, um, I, I, I don't really like how the media is demonized constantly. Yeah, we have some issues, but it, of course, has gone to a pretty disturbing point led by Trump, but many others who basically cast all journalists as liars uh, and corrupt with their own agendas. Uh, and so there, there's very little sort of way to communicate actual truth or debate issues or settle on shared principles when people on the right are kind of are just constantly rejecting whatever's on offer and then at the same time painting all journalists as liars and people who are, are deceiving you. Uh, and one other thing I'll add to sort of this, this heightening of the of public rhetoric and of, of inflammatory rhetoric, um, 
you know, David Sachs wrote a lot about Chase Boudin and, and talked about him on podcasts, on Megyn Kelly, on Fox News, and all these places. He called Chase Boudin the killer DA and basically said that people died because of him and his policies. I mean, given his role in public safety, some of those things could perhaps be debated, but obviously, you know, just outright demonization, sort of rage-driven uh, politics is what's going on here, I think. And well, another reason look at the, reason look, at the demon, look at the demonization yeah. of Nancy Pelosi, for God's sake. They yeah. on January the sixth they were calling for her execution, and now the same guy that attacks her husband says, "Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy?" The chant in the halls of the Congress. It's all yeah. I don't know. It's very disturbing, and I'm afraid we've run out of time. Just a quick last. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Just a quick. Oh, last. I'll go ahead. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, we're, we're facing these people who have a lot of money. They have some ideas about their political program. I mean, actually, I would argue that their foreign policy of just general isolationism is a little more developed. But here in the U.S., they don't seem to know what they want to do except support right-wing causes and be against the status quo. And th that is not a very positive political vision going forward. I mean, Peter Thiel in a recent speech called it nihilistic negation, which is sort of how he talks. But you know, he at the same time is, is a leader of this movement and of, of this problem. So, yeah, I, I can't offer an optimistic vision of where we go from here, I'm afraid. But it's good to understand what rich people on the right are funding and kind of the, the ideas that they're trying to put out there. Well, Jacob Silverman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Silverman, who's a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor at The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection. He often writes about the politics of tech, privacy, surveillance and media, and is currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. His latest article at The New Republic is The Quiet Political Rise of David Sachs, Silicon Valley's Prophet of Urban Doom. And his latest article at The Baffler is Musk of the Spheres, Elon's Doom to Succeed Twitter by. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how America was saved from Trump and how the GOP may save Putin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Rothkopf, who's a columnist for The Daily Beast and the founder and CEO of Rothkopf Group, a media company that produces podcasts including Deep State Radio, hosted by Rothkopf, and the author of a number of books including Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. His latest book out this week is American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. 
And he has an article at the Daily Beast, Putin's last hope to win in Ukraine is a GOP victory in November. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Rothkopf. Hi, Ian. Nice to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. We can obviously going to be talking about how America was saved from Trump and how the Republicans may save Putin. So let's start with that, given that we're a little over a week away from an election already. McCarthy, who could be the speaker if the Republicans pick up the House, he suggested that there won't be a blank check for Ukraine in terms of U.S. military assistance. And in last May, as your article points out, 57 Republicans voted against the $40 billion aid package to Ukraine. So do you think that given what just happened on Friday with the husband of Nancy Pelosi, which highlights the poisonous nature of our political discourse and the call for violence is out there on the far right, which is being stoked by Donald Trump and being transmitted through social media control by pro-Trump Silicon Valley titans. Is there a sense here that there may be an awakening in the nation finally that this discourse has just gotten too ugly and too dangerous and that maybe people should see, and for the life of me, I don't understand why all Americans can't see what a disaster Trump has been to the country and what a catastrophe it would be if he were to return. Well, I don't know that there's an awakening. Uh, There are certainly a number of polls that indicate uh, the Democrats might do better than expected in a midterm election. Uh, Most notably, early voting has been very heavily, uh, not only uh, uh, pro-democratic, but also early voting uh, has been at a much higher level than recent elections. That's an encouraging sign. Uh, And several swing state elections, particularly in the Senate, that the Democrats thought they might lose, they might win. But it is unbelievably close. And you are going to be up very late on election night, even in California, trying to figure out what is uh, what is happening with this election. It might take several uh, days, particularly since we live in an era of litigation uh, and challenges to election results. Uh, furthermore, you know, um, Every time I think Trump or the MAGA GOP or right-wing extremists have gone too far, that they've finally alienated people, Um, whether that was playing footsie with the Russians in 2016, whether it was uh, firing Comey, whether it was burying the Mueller report, whether it was the first impeachment and essentially trying to blackmail Ukraine, the second impeachment following January 6th, or all the activity since, the Republicans have um, embraced the ugliness even more closely, uh, and they've maintained their position. So, you know, it would be great if there were a reversal. Uh, The closest thing we've seen to that came a couple months ago as um, people, for example, in Kansas, were outraged at the Supreme Court's taking away a fundamental right that women have had for the past half century. Uh, And I think that if the Democrats do well, it may not be because of outrage over uh, the attack on the Pelosi household uh, or the ugliness of what Trump is doing or the foolhardiness of McCarthy and, and the defense of Putin. It's more likely to be because people are worried about democracy and they're worried that just as 
um, abortion rights have gone away. So might the right to marry the person you want to marry, uh, the right to use contraception, um, uh, and most importantly, the right to vote, which, uh, you know, if there are 300 people on the ballot who are election deniers, if they get elected, this could be the last election that we might ever refer to as free and fair. Well, but all of what you're talking about in many ways can be traced to Donald Trump, the demonization of Nancy Pelosi, the fact that the assailant is a QAnon follower and a Stop the Steal believer, all of which has been promoted by Trump and some of these other crazies that have joined the ranks of the Republicans. And McCarthy's probably going to not only take uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene out of jail in terms of congressional assignments, he's going to give her a, a, a plum job. I mean, this is the surreal nature of it that I struggle with is, I mean, you wrote about it in a sense in your most recent book, A Traitor, The History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. We know that Putin's strategy is to divide America and the greatest instrument of division has been Donald Trump. And he's turning us against each other, which unfortunately we're obliging him with. And this is all playing into Putin's strategy. and. The divisions are getting to the point now where there's even a possibility of civil war. So I just wonder if there's any way for a wake-up call to the American people saying, you know, you're being manipulated by malign foreign forces and the agent of this manipulation is none other than the hero of 40% of the country, Donald J. Trump. Well, look, I, I lay a lot of blame at Trump's feet, as you do. I lay a lot of the blame at Putin's feet, as you do. Putin has, you know, uh, undertaken um, uh, an effort internationally to undermine democracy in the Western alliance that has been every bit as successful as his um, uh, malevolent undertaking in Ukraine has been a failure. Uh, and you have uh, right-wing forces that pushed through Brexit in the UK, that have taken the leadership role in Italy, that have taken the leadership role in Hungary with Viktor Orban, uh, that have uh, you know, won recently in uh, uh, Sweden, that did better than they've ever done in recent elections in France. Um, uh, and of course, that's, you know, there are others out there as well. But uh, you know, in the US, whereas Trump is the, was the vehicle for the Putin push, I think a lot of the blame has got to go with the Republican establishment. You know, where were the Bushes, to, you know, denouncing Trump? Uh, you know, Mitt Romney's tried to play both sides of this deal. Uh, where was the RNC? Look at what's happened just in the past 48 hours following the attack on Paul Pelosi. You know, you have the Republicans who supposedly have the re reputation of being sort of, you know, better versions of Trump, like Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, making fun, making jokes about uh, an attempted attack on the third ranking person in the uh, US government hierarchy that is part of a pattern of attacks that can be traced back to January 6th uh, and beyond. Uh, the Republicans, while some have denounced the attack, um, none of them denounce Trump. All, most of them are defending Trump's theft of national secrets, which with every passing day looks more egregious uh, and potentially dangerous. They've all defended 
uh, the, you know, the election deniers. They're participating in undermining our system of democracy. So yes, Putin, yes, Trump, but by all means, you know, save some of the blame for the Republican leadership and for the 30 to 40% of American voters who are dependably voting for these people, despite the fact that their allegiance is not to this country uh, and that when they do get in power, they don't do, do anything. The only thing that the Republicans did when Donald Trump was president and they controlled the House was they put through a tax bill that helped the 1%, didn't help anybody else, and exploded the deficit, a deficit which I might point out has come down by a record amount under the Biden administration. Well, but if Putin wins in Ukraine, it's a catastrophe for Europe and for world stability, and it's a huge boost for the struggle that's happening between frail democracies and the rule of law and and the encroachment of autocracies. And then if we get Putin's twin, uh, the autocrat over here, Trump, then it's sort of game over. So again, everything that we're talking about, David Rothkopf, is an indication of how dire the stakes are. And it just, I'm sort of begging for some kind of intervention here. Obviously, it's not going to be extra, extraterrestrial, but is there any sense that you have that there is something left in the Republican Party? We've, we're pinning no, there, up. There, is, there, there are signs. Uh, and, and I agree with you completely about Ukraine. And I think the signs have been terrible since McCarthy said that, you know, Trump withheld aid. Uh, there's a very clear pattern. The only people who have opposed giving aid to Ukraine have been Republicans most recently in the past few days. Uh, they've uh, sought to kill an effort to use seized Russian assets to help uh, support Ukraine in, in their defense of themselves. Um, uh, this is grotesque. You know, Ukraine is a democracy. Ukraine was attacked. The Russians are war criminals. They're attacking civilians. They're now attacking, again, global food supplies, global energy supplies, attempting to freeze out Ukraine, threatening nuclear war against them, threatening uh, NATO by extension. Uh, there is absolutely no way you can be a patriotic American or even a sensible you know, resident of the planet Earth and not oppose what Putin is doing as actively as possible. Um, in terms of you know, the election itself, uh, I think we have to uh, rely on systems that the Republicans have under siege. Uh, the reasons the Republicans don't want free and fair elections is they know they're more Democrats than Republicans. They know that the country's undergoing a demographic shift. They know that Joe Biden won 4.5% more of the electoral, uh, of the popular vote than did Trump. They understand that as time goes by, their position will weaken, and they don't think that you know they can play fair and survive, and that's why they want to cheat. Uh, but we still have a chance if people vote, they vote early, they believe that voting still matters, if they help other people go to the polls, if they use their social media platform to amplify messages, to challenge uh, people who might be intimidating people at the polls, if people realize that a mass movement is the only way to stop them because the elites are not, um, then you know we have some hope. It is very encouraging to see uh, Liz Cheney out there endorsing some Democrats. 
But as we know, Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinzinger are part of a tiny, tiny, tiny minority uh, of people who still call themselves Republicans uh, who are doing anything remotely good for the United States right now. So it's gonna be up to Democratic voters um, to show up uh, and to show up in numbers. And in particular, younger voters who don't show up as much as other groups need to show up because their priorities align with Democrats and people need to realize what's gonna happen if the Republicans win. You're gonna lose that right to marry the person you wanna marry. Uh, there's gonna be a national ban on abortion. Uh, you may lose the right to contraception. You will lose the right to one person, one vote in the United States. You will see sham attacks on the Biden administration that you know, stop in their tracks any programs that might help people. And think about it. In the past two years, Biden has gotten through an enormous amount despite the odds. Um, and in almost every case, almost every Republican opposed it. So the choice is very clear. This is a very simple choice. You're pro-democracy, if you're pro you know, the US economy, if you're pro uh, US growing in the future, you don't, you don't have an alternative. You have to vote for the Democrats. David Rothkopf, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian, I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with David Rothkopf, who's a columnist for The Daily Beast and the founder and CEO of Rothkopf Group, a media company that produces podcasts, including Deep State Radio, hosted by Rothkopf, and the author of a number of books, including Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. His latest book out this week is American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. And he has an article at The Daily Beast, Putin's last hope to win in Ukraine is a GOP victory in November. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing it to me.